You're listening to RSA Radio. I'm Anthony Painter. The case for a universal basic income or not has become a major philosophical, political and policy debate over the last year or so. UBI is a simple concept, a regular payment that is paid by government to every citizen as of right. It could radically simplify the welfare state and provide a secure foundation for navigating an increasingly insecure and transient labour market. Some argue replacing means-tested benefits with a UBI could be a pragmatic response to growing insecurity, a springboard for people to take control of their lives. Others argue basic income would undermine the work ethic, would be costly and pull apart the threads of society. Is a basic income the best response to the new world of work? With me to discuss this are John Crudus, who's Labour MP for Dagenham and Raynham, author of Labour's 2015 Manifesto and a leading communitarian thinker and writer. Louise Haag, who is a reader in politics at York University and editor of the Basic Income Studies Journal. And John Thornhill, innovation editor at the Financial Times. He writes about technology and innovation and is host of the FT's Tectonic podcast. Louise, I'm going to start with you, if I may. Could you give us a quick explainer? as to the idea of basic income and why you think there is so much interest in it currently? Well, as I said when I gave evidence recently to the Work and Pensions Committee, I think basic income has become an institutional transformation happening on the ground, looking for an argument rather than being a principal looking for an experiment. So even though we are seeing experiments that look like thought experiments being put to the test, in fact, I think what we are seeing is something quite different, which is a form of institutional transformation that is happening and is at a point where we might look at something that looks more closely like a basic income. The important thing, I think, to understand about a basic income, and I've argued this in a recent blog and Compass, is that it is not necessary to present it as a radical proposal or indeed a simplification of the welfare state. In many ways, it's a complement and a source of extension of principles that we already accept in the post-war welfare state in terms of the universal inclusion of citizens in services we all share. So that includes health, education, and other benefits that we get without having made a prior contribution that we accept are important in order to make further contributions. So I, for one, is not someone who believes that UBI challenges the work ethic or needs to be justified on the grounds that it is necessary for people to live alternative or individualistic lifestyles, but rather it's important because it is in fact a basis, a necessary basis for social contribution in today's society. Well, we'll come back to those very weighty issues further on in the conversation. What benefits would you expect a UBI to offer and what might be the risks? Well, I think there are two immediate benefits which relate to two of the problems we're facing in the welfare state today, which are both problems in terms of its function and problems in terms of its justification, which are to do with the way in which the welfare state has come to criminalise the poor in a way that it did 150 years ago and up until a series of reforms to implement a different principle of welfare, shared principle and universal principle of welfare. But I think sort of through the back door, rather than necessarily it being intended that way, we have come to criminalise the poor by design and by function of the welfare system. So there are two aspects of the welfare system that I think basic income or something like it would help resolve. So those are, first of all, the benefit sanctions regime, which I think has become unsustainable, not only in terms of its function, in the sense that we find up to 40% of the sanctions, in fact, are repealed, but cause a great deal of hardship. The level of sanctions that are being imposed is very high. It's not just in terms of the financial cost of these sanctions, but rather that they do not serve the purpose to which they're allegedly designed. The other important change that I think a basic income would help innovate is in terms of the increasing use of conditionalities in work, 
we've had a, a high level of socialization of support for employment already in the, in the form of in-work benefits. And this is part of the change that, that implies that we are moving towards a basic income in any case. But along with that, because we've retained the sanctions regime, we now have in-work conditionalities in effect on the ground mean that people can be made to change their work hours, their job, because they don't qualify for a very particular a level of benefit. So whilst we may retain some means-tested benefits, the main implication of a basic income is that we do not sanction people or force people to make changes in their work status because of small changes in their incomes. John Thornhill, Louise has talked about very much around the relationship between welfare and work and the interaction between the two. But more broadly, you spend a lot of time speaking to technologists, to business leaders of the future, investors in future and businesses. What changes do you anticipate going forward? Well, I think where this debate has really taken off is on the kind of west coast of America. And when I was in Silicon Valley last year, I was struck by just a number of entrepreneurs, investors who really believe that we should support UBI the various kind of swirls of different philosophical thought behind this. But the principal one is that they believe that technology is just going to transform everything in our world of work, that they really do believe in this kind of economic singularity that uh, robots automation, the advances in artificial intelligence in particular, are going to eliminate vast swathes of jobs. Self-driving cars are going to eliminate three and a half million driving jobs in America, so they say. There is a kind of great libertarian strain of thinking in California in particular. And I think that mixes up with the idea that the welfare state, particularly in America, is broken. That Cato Institute produced a really interesting report on the US welfare state and the whole UBI debate and um, argued that there are 126 federal anti-poverty programs. America spends about a trillion dollars a year at the federal, state and local level on anti-poverty measures, and it doesn't seem to be having a conspicuous impact. So I think they think that UBI is a radical imaginative measure which could A, replace large elements of the welfare state and B, provide some kind of social support in this massively kind of transformative world of work which we're moving into. Do you get a sense that they're kind of believing their own hype somewhat with the magnitude of the expected impacts of technology on on the future of work or do they know something that we don't? Well, I think for sure they anticipate the future and believe that it's going to arrive a lot quicker than other people do. So, I mean, they, they just take it as read that self-driving cars are going to be on all of our streets uh, within a matter of a few years. And clearly there are reasons to believe that that's not going to be the case, that uh, legislators are going to make sure that this takes a lot longer than uh, we think. So I think they concede the extreme end of the argument. And uh, I think that's the way that a lot of these conversations are going. But certainly they're at the extreme end of the debate, I think. John Carlos, you see the world of work changing year in, year out in your constituency, I would imagine. It's a place of, that's been subject to significant economic and social change. Relating that to John's account of how those, particularly on the West Coast of America, view change, and how do you interpret the changes that you're seeing before you currently? Well, it's obviously very turbulent in terms of labour market reforms, patterns of social security reform, demonisation of the welfare recipient the uh, sanctions regime, the brutality of it, literally the denial of citizenship that goes along with it. I think it's an appalling combination of forces that you see ripping through communities like ours. And when you stack it in with the housing pressures, cost of living, flatlining wages, all of this makes it an appalling combination of social and economic forces at the sharp end, which demands big, bold, radical thinking. And that's why I like the debate around UBI, because it sort of refracts loads of 
big ideas into a sort of space. It has a zeitgeisty thing. It sort of picks up a lot of the big assumptions around technological change. There's radicals on the left, libertarian right, are all in this space. It has sort of historic anti-sins. It's lively, this space. I feel there are big bets going on around anticipating where all this goes in terms of technological change. And a lot of the data seems to me to be controversial. It's not a sort of slam dunk in terms of knowing what the future unfolds. I've seen a lot of these debates in the past roll through. When we just got elected in 97, there was a whole literature about the knowledge economy, which assumed that the working class or traditional forms of work were offered diminishing returns in terms of trying to provide solutions around this. You just ignored it. And there's a danger with some of this about anticipating the future at the expense of concrete remedies today around the employment relationship. So I really like the idea. I find it really compelling in terms of some of the points that Louis is making and John in terms of trying to confront the enormity of some of the issues we're dealing with, both in terms of the social economic situation at local level as well as the big global challenges. But I just think we just have to be careful in terms of assuming too much in terms of anticipating the future and also test driving a lot of these ideas and data so we can have a more thoughtful, nuanced analysis of what's going on. Actually, that's what the RSA have been doing over the last few years, in contrast to some of the futurology around this and some of the uh, technological determinism, which to my mind, on the left of the uh, political equation, has sort of compromised the whole history of the left in terms of its attempt to humanise employment. We're sort of assuming that's the end of work anyway, so let's remove ourselves from that site of political struggle. Already in this discussion, there's at least three philosophical arguments for basic income that have been voiced from different perspectives, not the three people around the table, but from elsewhere. The libertarian perspective that John Thornhill emphasised, the more sort of development of the welfare state and, and what it might offer in the current state of work from Louise. And you've given voice to a sort of radical Marxist proposition that this is post-work technological determinism and so on. Louise, do you see those three arguments of basic income as being distinctive and having different qualities in terms of their ability to engage with a mainstream discussion about the possibility of basic income? Well, to be honest, I see the libertarian argument as fitting into a bigger argument, and that's the only way they can be plausible. They cannot be plausible on their own, and when they're presented in that way, they're not persuasive, and they alienate a lot of people, and I can see why. The case I'm trying to make is a democratic case for basic income, which I think has been lacking. So we've had libertarian arguments on the left, we've had libertarian arguments on the right, and they're both linked with the future technological determinism, which is not new, by the way. That's a very old argument, the technological determinist argument. It's also a very old argument, the basic income discourse, incidentally. The Danish painter, Hollenberg, who was in favour of basic income in the 1930s, made the argument, in many ways, the same argument as Philip van Badish has made, which was that this would liberate artists and give them a sort of status in society. He was, in fact, valued against democracy and he rallied against the organised working class. But the argument he made nevertheless was plausible. I mean, the argument on its own that it is right that individuals should be guaranteed the means of independence in modern society is right. It's just a wider frame that the libertarians give it is wrong. I want to have tried in my writing to rescue the rights-based case, but make the historical case that, in fact, if you look at it realistically, rights-based transformations 
usually are linked, are systemic. So they're linked with other transformation of rights. And therefore, what I'm predicting, in fact, is that basic income so far as it's going to be realised, it's going to be realised in a social democratic context, or more likely to be realised in that context, because A, the principle of universalism is stronger, B, the financial system to support universalism is stronger, the practice of shared security in several dimensions, of which basic income, in fact, is one part, is already established. So it's not a surprise to me that it's in Finland that we, we are having an experiment led by the government, which is more universal than the experiment in Holland, which is a little bit more punitively structured. And it's not a surprise to me either that Danish municipalities are experimenting and municipalities in France are experimenting with lifting conditionality, which in fact is a first step towards a basic income in many ways. These universal institutions, I think, historically, they're very difficult to put in place and get the political support behind. But once you get them in place, they're incredibly popular. There's a kind of paradox involved here, isn't there? John Carlos, if not a universal basic income as a response to some of these challenges that we're facing, what sort of interventions do you think might be more appropriate and more likely to sort of garner a, a mainstream conversation? Well, going back to the point I made before, I, I feel on the left of politics, there is a question of the crisis of social democracy and how this sort of fits in terms of reimagining social democracy per se. And I think that is a really good argument there. Unfortunately, because of the collapse of mainstream social democracy across Western market economies, it has now become the preserve of certain other traditions, which are not as benign, I would suggest, in terms of their analysis and their conclusions and where this might end up. So the radical left analysis on this is read on a specific reading of Marx's fragment on the machines. It has actually quite a strong anti-humanist traditions which have have sort of submerged underneath this uh, conversation which I think duty bound those who really want to embrace this idea have to smoke out some of the motives that lie underneath some of these other contributions so almost to sort of clear the decks so that we can have a proper thoughtful consideration of some of the technical issues some of the piloting and how that's working or otherwise how we might pilot it in the UK obviously in Scotland it's a live conversation maybe with some of the devolved institutions and the future mayors that are coming this could be front and centre in terms of more innovative thinking the work of the RSA across some other local authorities I just think there is so much overhang at the moment around this conversation. We've got to get rid of that so that we can actually get to where we need to as a base camp to have a more thoughtful conversation. It's really interesting, John Thornhill, isn't it? Because suddenly we're getting into this framing around a sort of humanist and post-humanist or even anti-humanist yeah. structuring of, of basic income. And I, and I just wonder whether you see some of that reflected in some of the narratives that are coming out about it from the West Coast of America. And it's, there's this weird confluence of sort of Marxist thought plus Silicon Valley thought around you know, one version of a basic income. As John's saying, it's this kind of technological determinism from both left and right, which is so striking. But I think one of the other elements of the West Coast debate, which I find it very interesting and encouraging is that people are prepared to experiment with it. And so Sam Altman at Y Combinator, for example, has put a lot of money into some experimental projects on basic income. And I think that that is the way forward. I think we should have experiments around the world, see where this works and where it doesn't, what are the learning experiences that we can have. And I mean, certainly in the world of um, refugee support, for example. I mean, the International Rescue Committee, they have concluded, I think, that one of the most effective ways of helping people is just giving them cash. And I think uh, there are other organisations like Give Directly who are also involved in that as well. I think it would be a wonderful thing if we could have a lot of experimentation to see what works well where, what we can learn from from that, and then kind of build on some of these experiments rather than going for some massive big bang approach to 
reform of, of the whole welfare state. I think that's a key point. But there is something that is happening in the world of work that we need to be alert to, isn't there? Even if it's not the replacement of half of jobs by automation, there is no doubt over the last 20, 30 years, we've been seeing an increase in casualisation of labour, flexibilisation, zero-hours contracts, so on and so forth. A lot of that is driven, interestingly, by the first computer information revolution. And it's just being implemented in an organisational setting, which allows more efficient allocation of tasks. But as we go forward, increasingly, we can see that some are able to take advantage of automation, AI, computing, and others feel that they have a sense of agency being taken from them. And when you put that alongside the welfare state, that can go in a different direction. There is no doubt that we need to be alert to this sort of dividing, divisive labour market and work market, which could only get worse. I think that's right. I mean, I'm not sure that I really believe in this debate about the end of jobs, but I do believe there's a debate on the end of employment. The idea that we're going to all be working for the same company for 30 years is now, I think, completely delusional. And the other element of all this debate is that um, the increased um, longevity of people, actuarially an 18-year-old today is likely to live to 103, does mean that we're going to have to have far more flexible approaches to work and the kind of careers that people pursue. And in that context, I think that having some kind of basic income will be a wonderful way of reducing the kind of frictional costs of moving from one kind of job to another. It seems, Louise, that... There needs to be some deeper thought about the things that wrap around any possible basic income, that if it's done experimentally, there has to be some thought given to how do we make that work with what people expect from their lives, which includes work, and how can you provide additional supports around that and aid some of these transitions if indeed transitions are necessary. So basic income becomes part of a stack of interventions as opposed to the magic bullet. I came to basic income after having worked on occupation, which is what interests me, and the importance of occupation, occupational identity, occupational stability, occupational life and working life. I'm coming at it the other way, really. And I do worry about the argument of basic income as a solution to precarious work, because that suggests that precarious work is inevitable. And this is a fact that we have to accept. I think that's very uh, problematic. And I also do not think that what we're seeing is a change led by technology necessarily. It's a change led by institutional change. And that institutional change is led by political forces that have deliberately, in quite a structured way, gone about deregulating and flexibilizing work. And I don't think all of those changes are given or inevitable or desirable. I come at this from a comparative context and I'm interested in different forms of capitalism, varieties of capitalism, and I'm working on the Nording model. And what you see there is, I think, a much more thickly constructed notion of occupational life and shared institutions and shared security around the notion of occupation. So even if you have forms of uh, flexible work in certain areas of the economy, you have, as a counterweight to that, then the reconstituting of ways of sharing work and ways of investing in education that allows society to retain the idea of having an occupational identity and building on that. Now, I don't think it, that we need to take it for granted that the future marks the end of stable employment either. I don't think it marks the end of public employment. I don't think it marks the end of public services. And a very big debate that's ongoing in the UK, of course, is about care. And how is care organised? Who does care? How is care valued and remunerated? And there's a real place there for a reimagining of occupation for the future. John Crillis, do you see that there is a possibility that if handled in the right way, basic income could become part of these conversations about how to reconstruct these social relations rather than dissemble them? I am critical of the way the conversation has developed to date partly because I think it's obscured some of these issues that we're fleshing out in the conversation, actually. The notion of the end of work 
rather than what I see day to day is the degradation of work, actually. And that needs remedies, as you were suggesting, in terms of a, a platform of different interventions. There is also something here about how we understand labour and work. You've seen in the academy... It's removed itself from a study of labour institutionally, partly because of changes in economic thinking, both in terms of the left and the right. So we don't really have the capacity in the academic institutions to really study into this. And where you do have the capacity, I was up at Leicester at the Centre for Sustainable Employment the other day, and they were doing some fantastic case studies which suggested... To the contrary of the future Ollie about the end of work, a lot of this technological change, for example, in logistics or other sorts, is actually boosting employment. And now there is a question about some of the quality of that and some of the modern forms of attachment to technology literally within the workplace, which is dehumanising workers, and that needs to be analysed. But it's not all one-way traffic in terms of the end of work, the end of labour as we know it, and throws up questions about, A, how we study labour, but also how we have a mixed platform of remedies that we can try and choke off the worst effects of we see in constituencies like mine. In terms of a wider conversation, especially which I like, is it starts focusing in on what is it to live a good life. That and human creativity and a much wider conversation than we've had for almost a generation in terms of the character of our society. That's where the real benefits of this conversation lie. John Thornhill, the cynical view could be that business, technology and so on is just trying to abdicate its responsibility by grabbing onto universal basic income as his solution. Do you think there is a way of appropriately pushing back and saying, no, we still have to have a discussion about what work is, what it's meaning, how important it is to people, how it could be structured differently in the future? Because that is one aspect of the good life, as John Crudder says. I think you're right that that is one of the impulses of uh, why business is interested in this. They can shift the responsibility onto someone else and say it's their problem to sort out. But I do think... uh, and it's quite striking um, on the West Coast, the extent to which people worry about the ability of future consumers to buy their products. I think that that will be a big impulse to encourage this debate to get going. I mean, I was at a debate the other day where people were talking about the concept of a corporate basic income, that Apple would uh, give you money over the course of 20 years, provided that you bought into buying their products. There are all kinds of variations of this debate that are happening. And I think business or some businesses are now thinking very radically about what they ought to be doing. What's becoming clear is that basic income itself is a site of political discussion. It's not a particular perspective on the wider world of work and changing society. Within it, there is a ferocious political debate that is going on, and maybe some of that needs to come to the surface. I think that's exactly right. I mean, different approaches to justice, philosophically, all have a different approach to the basic income. The left and the right have different, libertarian or fairly centralising traditions have different approaches to it. It's not owned by anyone which means that it has to be defined by everyone to tease out some of the tensions in and around it. We're at the early footings, it seems to me, of this debate. I worry this could create or reinforce a sense of passive consumerism rather than a more muscular citizenship, so that's in play. I worry about the corporate idea of buying out your job and just financing your future consumption, which is not the most virtuous future, I would suggest. But at least it creates this space to have a conversation in and around politics that hasn't been had for an awful long time. And that seems to me to be the enduring quality of the debate over the last year or so. I think what we're seeing is a re-socialisation of the economy. Economies are social things, but we've been sold a fiction for the last 30 years that we are all individuals and somehow if we enter into the market, then some sort of equilibrium will come out of it. That idea is now dead. That died in 2008 and we now know that that 
is a fiction. And I think this is positive, even if, if I don't buy into the argument, the Silicon Valley argument, for obvious reasons. I think it is positive that there is now this capitulation to the, the fiction of the market. It is now understood that we live in a socialized economy. And so the big question really is, to what extent should what we share be based in rights? So that, or basically, rather, is an alternative to the concept of membership of a corporation and being sustained in some sort of consumption cycle through that kind of membership. That basic income is a different form of membership and entitlement to economic security in a stable form, not economic security in the form of the current uh, sanctions regime where you have to apply to attain economic security, but economic stability, which is a form of security that's attached to rights. And the bigger question, of course, is what we want out of that that social economy, which goes back to the questions of the good life again. John Carlos, just some final thoughts from you. Looking at the experimental nature of this, how the argument is developing, what it's connected to and what it might become disconnected from, what is it that will encourage you to engage far more proactively in the basic income discussion on, on the left, do you feel, in a way that engages it as a possible component of a stack of interventions that might lead to something equated? Well, I, I actually think there's the beginning of a rights-based thinking around this, which I think is really positive in terms of different theories of justice. It tends to be quite instrumentalised a lot of the conversation. I hear people, they, they demand the right to be lazy and to have free money. I've literally heard about it set up in those terms, which has a different sort of history in terms of models of justice and utilitarian sort of thinking. But I like an alternative approach which goes into some of these questions about what is it to be human and what should we desire in our lives? I see a lot of anti-democratic and anti-human dominance of the debate quite, state. Quite. And that needs to be reset. But if that can be achieved, there are huge possibilities mm-hmm. in terms of altering the tempo of the public conversation. Louise, you said at the beginning of the conversation that you didn't consider this to be a radical change, but I think for a lot of people looking at political attitudes and where they are, particularly with respect to welfare, it does feel like a big change. What do you think it will take to shift mindsets around uh, to a position where basic income might become a mainstream possibility? I think we've been mistaken in the basic income community, as it were, in saying that this is a radical change. And I think we've been mistaken in selling this as a source of alternative lifestyles. Much as I think it is a source of alternative lifestyles, it's much more than that. That's a small part of the argument. This is not very different from other rights that we entertain and we take for granted, such as one person, one vote, the right to universal health care, the right to education without contribution. The right to a socialised basic income is a form of citizenship that is constitutive and enabling of other forms of citizenship and contribution within society. And that's the case that needs to be made. And I think if we make it in that in those terms and also stop linking the basic income necessarily to the anti-poverty agenda and link it instead to reconstituting citizenship because it's not just the interests of those currently out of work that are served by basic income. It's the interest of every citizen to have the knowledge that whatever the situation he or she finds himself in and let's not forget, a lot of the people who end up on benefit rolls are people who have worked all their lives and who find themselves suddenly out of a job and faced with a sanctions regime, which presupposes that they lack incentives to work when that's not the case at all. So what it does is it empowers citizens, not just those who are long-term unemployed, but actually every member of society. And John Thornhill, do you think from your perspective this is just another Silicon Valley idea that has come across? It kind of is very fashionable, it's kind of got a simplicity to it that people can engage with and it will disappear? Or do you think it is now set on a trajectory where it's likely to get bigger and bigger as a conversation? 
Well, I think there will definitely be a debate in Silicon Valley about all this. I'm not quite sure that that's reflected at all in what's going on on the other coast of America. I haven't heard anyone in Donald Trump's administration talking about this in any way at all. So I suspect that it's not going to be much of a kind of practical debate in America for a while. But we shouldn't forget that it was under President Nixon that a kind of variant of basic income very nearly was enacted in the 1970s, a kind of negative income tax at that time when there was another kind of wave of fear about automation and the impact that was going to have on the world of work. There is a kind of cyclicality to this debate. I think uh, it's going to run for quite a while yet, but I think it's probably premature to believe that it's going to be implemented within the next few years. I think one key point I've, I've taken from this is advocates of basic income obviously can't latch it onto the conversation about automation alone. And there needs to be a far bigger conversation around humanistic versions of basic income, how that relates to citizenship and the good life. And there needs to be a sort of veering away from a post or anti-humanist perspective on, on basic income. And then maybe there can be a, a richer and wider conversation about whether it's the right move for this society and others. John Crudus, Louise Haag, John Thornhill, thank you very much. That was RSA Radio on basic income and the future of work. This programme has been an RSA and Resonance production. This episode is also available as a podcast, which you can get by subscribing to RSA Radio wherever you get your podcasts from.